Hey everyone, the It's All Journalism team wanted to remind you that we have an email newsletter where you can get all the latest news about our podcast. Go to our website, itsalljournalism.com, and follow the link to subscribe. Thanks, and enjoy the episode. So what you end up with less of is the kind of journalism that's really going to serve communities but happens to be much more expensive and labor-intensive to produce. I don't know about you, but at the height of the pandemic, as a local reporter, I was busier than I'd ever been. Now that many of us have been able to catch our breaths, it's time to consider what did we do well and what could we have done better in covering the pandemic. I'm Michael O'Connell. Welcome to It's All Journalism. Jesse Holcomb is an assistant professor in journalism and communication at Calvin University in Grand Rapids, Michigan. He is one of the authors of a new report looking at how local media has covered education during the COVID-19 pandemic in the U.S. Jesse, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be with you again, Michael. Yeah, now say welcome back because we actually spoke way back in 2015 at, at the Association of Alternative News Media's annual conference in Salt Lake City. Tell me, I, I'm trying to, I was trying to remember what it was you were speaking about. Do you remember? Well, at the time, I was brought out to that conference to deliver some very bracing news for alternative weekly news print media. So that's what I was asked to do. And I got in and then I ducked out real quick because at the time there was some, you know, you look at those trend lines and unfortunately what we've seen since then has really borne out and it's just decimated that particular sector of course, we've seen lots of really promising green shoots emerge out of the digital media ecosystem since then. But I was at the Pew Research Center at the time and was doing all that research about the state of the industry and future of print advertising and audiences. And, and that's what I was asked out, <laughs> out there to do. I remembered your talk, which is one of the reasons I wanted to have you on. It was really interesting and it was it was kind of that point in you know alternative in media where they the, a lot of them are coming to grips with the loss of display advertising and classified advertising people forget about that and the impact that was going to have on their long-term sustainability and, and a lot of people at that time they, they couldn't mentally make that jump to you know turning that into digital there's no digital revenue because they weren't making any money on, on digital revenue. But a lot of that has changed. Some papers, you know, obviously they folded. Others found ways to adapt. But so what have you been doing since then? Well, Michael, so since then, that was 2015. I was at the Pew Research Center for a couple of years after that. I was there in total for about 10 years. And then I made a kind of a big lifestyle change. I left Washington after having spent a long time there and moved out to where I am today, West Michigan, Grand Rapids, Michigan, and took a faculty position at Calvin University where I teach journalism and communication. I loved my time at the Pew Research Center, but for a variety of reasons, it was just time to kind of make the switch and came out here to be closer to my wife's family and some other things. So it's been just actually a wonderful change of pace. And, and I've been here since then teaching and mentoring student journalists. I advise the student paper, but I continue my research portfolio, not with Pew, but I do a lot of work with the Knight Foundation and Gallup, where I'm a, a principal advisor to their trust, media, and democracy work. And I also, for the past four or five years or so, have been the lead analyst for the INN Index, which is an annual survey of 
nonprofit newsroom. So I definitely still get my hands dirty with a lot of data and research. And that's what kind of gave rise to this Hewlett-funded study of education news. Okay. So yeah, well, let's, let's continue on with that. Where, you know, where did that come from? You know, what prompted that study? Well, this came about a few years ago. And mind you, this was before COVID-19, okay? The Hewlett Foundation's education program, they do grant making in all kinds of areas, including tech, cyber, democracy, and, and so forth. But their education program was really interested in helping to close some of these racial and ethnic equity gaps in teaching and learning and school environments. And as part of that, they really wanted to know how communities were staying informed about what was going on in schools and education, and in particular, communities of color and other underserved communities. So they approached me to commission some research about that. They were interested in where communities were getting their news about schools. And furthermore, they wanted to learn more about the quality of education coverage, especially at the local level. So they commissioned this two-part series of research, and then COVID hit. I was in the middle of data collection. Well, not quite. I was designing the research. And Michael, I had to really pivot pretty hard in the spring of 2020. Because as anyone who's paying attention to schools and Ed knows, you can't really talk about, write about, research about education without accommodating the fact that this bomb just basically blew up in the middle of our educational system when COVID hit. Yeah, we were all kind of pivoting <laughs> in March and April of 2020. The way you sort of said it, you know, we're going to look at racial equity and education back in 2020. 2020, you know, I keep thinking back about that. That was the year where everybody kind of decided, well, we've got all these big questions. Why don't we try to ask them at once and see what happens? So how did you pivot? Well, I wanted to produce some research that would be kind of evergreen and enduring. You know, fingers crossed, once we reach that endemic stage of COVID, that the findings here would still be useful and insightful to people in in industry, in education, and beyond. But I also had to incorporate a number of, say, survey questions to help us understand how communities were, what their information priorities were when COVID was impacting schools and education. So we had to kind of redesign the questionnaire and also refocus the second component of the study, which was a, a content analysis of media coverage, to really be able to understand how local media were covering schools during a time of crisis. And this is true in, say, uh, the political campaigns as well, or anytime there is a major event happening, you can really learn a lot about media performance when it's under strain. I kind of liken it to test driving a NASCAR vehicle. You really see what the thing is made of when you are just revving it up to uh, 100 RPM, right? You see where its strengths are and weaknesses are, and that stuff is really magnified. So when you study media performance in a time of crisis, you can learn a lot about it. So I'd like to think, and I'm hopeful that the findings from this series of research are very relevant to the moment, but also will be enduring and lasting for the future. And unfortunately, 
just, you know, even if schools and the education system returns to some degree of normalcy, there's still always a crisis around the corner and our system is just under strain from a variety of angles. And so these findings I hope will be timely for a long time to come. Who is it you, you polled? Was it families? Was it newsrooms? Well, the survey was a survey of parents, actually, parents of children in the K-12 education system. We really wanted to focus on this population because that was an area of interest of my funder. And it was something kind of unique. We don't always get the opportunity to do that kind of specialized survey work where we're asking a special population. And so we worked with NORC out of University of Chicago with a nationally representative panel and did the survey in both English and Spanish. And you know what else we did, Michael, was we surveyed twice. We went into the field in the spring of 2020 when COVID had really shut down schools across the country. And then we surveyed again more recently in August of 2021 to just capture some of you know, what might have changed in terms of attitudes and behaviors among parents over the course of that time. What did your research reveal about how local news outlets were covering education during the pandemic? Well, in general, you don't have to read me right, the whole report. Right. So I could talk about what we learned from parents and I could okay. talk about what we learned about media coverage. What do you want to dive into first, Michael? Let's start with the parents because, you know, what we're supposed to do and more people keep discovering and rediscovering is that we're supposed to like provide information that people want. What did the parents want? What was their experience with media coverage during the pandemic? So we definitely asked a number of questions about information priorities. What do parents want to know when it comes to information about schools and education? And it was pretty clear in both times that we polled, Michael, that parents are really concerned about information that's going to impact their immediate day-to-day -day lives and their families. They're interested in information that will help keep their kids learning and also information about how to keep their kids safe and healthy. So maybe pre-pandemic, that was something that would have been a priority as well, but parents were interested in school safety, safety from from bullying, honestly, but also they were concerned about violence in schools. But over the course of the period that we studied, it was really about how do I keep my kid educated? You know, Michael, a lot of parents were pivoting to online learning from home and helping their kids. This wasn't the case for all families across the country, but it was certainly for a lot of them. So they were interested in information about teaching and learning, about health and safety. Sometimes I get asked about whether the current political debates, culture, about curriculum, history, critical race theory, how much of that is a topic of concern for parents? And I would say from the research we did that parents are interested in policy, they're interested in curriculum for sure, but it's secondary. Parents are interested in information that's going to affect their kind of media day to day. So how well did uh, you know, local news outlets respond? So this was where that companion study comes in, Michael. After we did the survey research, we went and studied local media coverage of education around the country. And we looked at it during a period of time that spanned late 2019 into I'm sorry, late 2020 into 2021. 
And we explored coverage in about 20 media markets, looked at about 1,500 news stories across nearly 150 local media outlets. So these included broadcasters, also daily newspapers and digital publications, radio, and we had a special emphasis on what some people refer to as ethnic media, you know, included Spanish language media, some Chinese language media, basically what we refer to as media that is, is designed to focus on serving communities of color. And what we found was that when it comes to the news agenda in local media around education, it largely mirrored or aligned with what parents were really interested in and concerned about. So a lot of local media coverage really did focus on teaching and learning about what was happening in classrooms, about how instruction was going to continue on during COVID. And parents were also interested in whether schools were going to be staying open or whether they're going to be closing. And we found that a lot of local coverage focused on that dimension as well. Now, there were other things that sort of took a back burner, and some of that might be related to the time period that we were studying as well. But at least during that time, there was a large alignment. Now, there were other aspects, though, of local coverage that arguably don't serve parents quite as well. One of them I'd want to highlight is what might seem a little counterintuitive, but I'd say there was maybe just a little bit too much news happening <laughs> during this time, right? Yeah, it's like, okay. A little. <laughs> so what I mean by that is that the vast majority of local coverage was essentially breaking news. And in some cases, it was kind of redundant. So you'd see stories over and over again that were repeated across the region about schools that were reopening or closing, but with very little context, very little information beyond what actually schools and districts themselves were also providing to parents. So what you end up with less of is the kind of journalism that's really gonna serve communities, but happens to be much more expensive and labor intensive to produce. So that stuff I'm talking about service journalism, solutions-oriented journalism, investigations, enterprise work, even features. So we saw really very little of that. And, and it's not an entirely surprising, but it's definitely something that was really clear in the findings. Did you see that as sort of an indictment against, you know, news judgment and, and news choice or were newsrooms impacted by a lot of the same factors that everybody else was being impacted by, which is, you know, they weren't able to write the big story about the meeting because the meeting might not take place. It might not be in person. They weren't able to easily, you know, identify all the different players. The focus was more on whether the school was going to open, whether, you know, children were going to be safe as opposed to, you know, bullying or other topics that, that maybe, I don't know, were either more difficult to, to cover or seemed less important in light of the pandemic. You know, it's interesting, Michael, I was thinking about the last time that we connected and, and talked for this podcast, which was 2015. I had just come off of a big study of what were case studies of local metropolitan news coverage at the time. And that's part of what we were talking about in the podcast. And even then, we found a similar finding in that research was that the local coverage in the metro areas we studied 
the vast majority of it was sort of reactive. It was breaking news. And that's a through line. And we found it in the education news coverage study that we're talking about today. So these are challenges that are systemic to the industry that have been around now for kind of a long time and have only, I think, been made worse by COVID. And even education reporters, and a lot of the stuff we covered that we studied wasn't produced by beat specialists, but by general assignment reporters and so on. But journalists are also in many cases dealing with these school systems themselves on a personal level. Their parents or guardians, or they've got family members who are dealing with it. So they're stressed, they're you know, beyond their own capacity. Their newsrooms have been cut back. They're owned by hedge funds. And there's really not a lot of wiggle room there for them to kind of do the stuff that maybe they want to be doing. So I don't want to talk about it in terms of an indictment. It just feels like shooting fish in a barrel to wag my finger at local journalists. But I guess what I would say is that we're at a moment where it's not just news organizations and journalists that have the capacity to produce these kind of basic who, what, when, where piece of information. We know from the survey that parents are getting a lot of that information directly from sources that aren't just journalistic in nature. They're getting it from school districts, from the schools themselves, and from other community and civic organizations. So I think it's worth thinking about collectively, really who plays which of these roles in the ecosystem, who should be playing it. And I'm not trying to say that there's not a role for professional verification of some of these facts. Facts are really slippery, even when they seem kind of obvious on the face of it. But I think it's worth taking a step back and thinking about who should be doing that kind of work, who is best positioned to be doing it, and where should journalistic labor be freed up, okay? Now, that's a very normative kind of question. That's in some ways pie in the sky, and I don't know how you actually get industrial journalism to pivot at this point, (laughs) but I do think those are some of the questions that this research raises. Some of the things you say really don't surprise me that much. The focus around breaking news. When you say breaking news, are you talking breaking education news or just that they're putting out a lot of breaking news alerts, period, just about all different things? We've seen it in other research across all genres. In this case, in this particular study, we saw it with education news. It's it's coverage about things that are currently happening or have just happened. And I kind of like to conjure Sarah Alvarez founder of Outlier Media in Detroit, who talks about what she calls pre-news, that there are communities and families who are desperate for basic information that's going to help them kind of survive in their cities and their communities. But some of that information isn't what we even consider or describe as news. It's a little bit sort of lower on the pyramid and it's it's more basic and requires us to kind of rethink what kind of civic information that we are serving communities 
and right now, a lot of it is what we call news. It's stuff that has already happened. And it's maybe in some cases, sometimes useful, but maybe not as useful as we'd like to think. You know, in my day job, I'm a, a community editor with Patch. I cover, you know, four or five, depending on how you count it, different communities. And so I have to, you know, produce content ideally for each of those communities every day. And, you know, are the choices I make, you know, 100% based on this is the newsiest thing and the most important thing for the audience to know that day? Not always, because, you know, I've got deadlines, I've got things I need to do. But one of the things that, that I find kind of really fascinating over the last few years, and I think this kind of touches on what you're talking about, is, you know, while newsrooms are shifting and, you know, adopting these digital tools, schools, governmental bodies, companies, lots of different things in the community are sort of mastering how to get their information out there quickly. So if there's a water main break at a school, maybe our role is to write something up and and send out a, you know, a tweet and a, and a news news alert, a breaking news alert. But at the same time, you know, the school's going to send that out to people who've signed up to their mailing list. Or a student is going to share that information, you know, through Twitter. So, you know, that's kind of the the, the battleground, for lack of a better word, where a lot of local journalists are kind of in. And so decision-making around, is this the best story that needs to be written today, doesn't always happen consistently. And so often what you're doing is you're taking this pre-news stuff, you know, as you described it, and, you know, turning it into an alert or, or you're aggregating the work of other news outlets and there's a degree of service in that, especially in the aggregation sense, in that if, if it's coming from a source that people you know, don't usually have access to, the role of the reporter then is a little bit more of, I'm passing on this information, but it may not be mm-hmm. an in-depth thing, but it, it may serve your needs for the time being until a, a longer story can, uh, yes. can happen. And you know, there are also lessons in this research, not just for journalists and newsrooms, but for these other information providers, schools and school officials. We found that almost every parent, no surprise here, is getting bombarded by email information from their schools. Not all parents prefer that form of communication. And we found that, you know, white parents were more likely to say that they appreciated email communication from schools, but Black and Hispanic parents, for instance, were much more likely to prefer a phone call. And we also found that, speaking of race and ethnicity, parents had different experiences when it came to their interactions with school officials, including teachers, superintendents, principals. Parents of color were more likely to say that they had a negative experience, that their schools did not understand their needs, that they did not even feel as welcome in the school building as white parents say that they felt. So, you know, this is, I think, really important to the extent that schools are increasingly becoming information providers of some of that basic meat and potatoes kind of information about what's going on, that they really need to understand the way that they are perceived and the way that parents of color experience that interaction. And secondly, this is a place where journalists and newsrooms have a real opportunity, Michael. One thing that journalists have is, in many cases, access and the ability to 
get information from key sources about what's going on and to make sense of that. And what I mentioned in the study, and I want to mention here, is that this is an opportunity for journalists to, to actually recognize their powerful role as not just an information provider, but as an advocate for parents, especially parents who feel shut out of these systems. Say, I can serve your needs and help you get the information you need to help your child thrive. I think is a really powerful role and one that we need community journalists for. You know, we talk about breaking news. You, you want people to know what's happening at that moment. But the, the stories that, that provide context that expose, you know, wrongdoing or lack of fairness, you know, those are the ones that resonate with readers. I mean, any journalist knows that. But that doesn't mean we always gravitate towards writing the stories because those stories can sometimes be hard. And we need to challenge ourselves to do hard stories more often. So what do you hope that the journalists take away from this study? Well, I guess one thing I really, I hope for and alluded to it earlier is that they can recognize that role of being a guide, not just an information provider for families and communities. And I'm not just going to sit here and say, I think that education reporters need to do more investigative and, and deep enterprise reporting, right? That's not exactly the most useful advice to give. But I do think that there are opportunities to provide basic factual information that's verified in the way that a journalist can do that's going to help families and communities navigate their educational systems. Everything from teaching and learning to testing to safety to other kinds of decisions that parents need to make about how to get their child the best education that they possibly can. Schools are confusing and they're really hard to kind of navigate. And sometimes families and parents feel like they are disempowered, that they aren't in the driver's seat. And this is especially true among families that have already been systemically marginalized from these systems and inequitable systems. So journalists have a role to play there. And the other thing I would say is that we had parents indicate that they saw a lot of negativity in local coverage of education. And I think there's some value in that finding, but I think it's also more complicated than that. We saw this for one, especially among white parents. White parents were more likely to say that there was a lot of bad news in the news. Parents of color really rely on local news outlets for information because, as I mentioned before, they don't always feel like they're getting what they need from the schools themselves, whereas white parents are more satisfied with school source of information. So I don't necessarily want journalists to take away from this that they just need to go out and be producing puff pieces and stuff that makes people feel good. I think that there's a lot of hard news out there, a lot of difficult and important news that needs to be told. At the same time, there is more of a role, I think, than we realize for service journalism, information that's going to actually help people solve problems and navigate these systems. And that kind of falls outside of the constraint of positive news versus negative news. It's more like it's useful news. And I think that that's something that journalists can take away from this as something that communities value. 
To that point, one of the things that your report says is, you know, more of an em- emphasis on, you know, providing solutions. You know, we've talked about solution journalism in the past and how it's a type of service journalism that can have a, a huge impact that doesn't have a particular, you know, political bent, but it is factual and, you know, the audience recognizes it as a resource to help them do whatever it is they need to do. So, yeah, anything that encourages that type of journalism, you know, I think is is a great thing to do. Jesse, this has been a great discussion. You know, we're going to be including a link to the report on our website. Let's not wait seven years to talk again. I'm sure you're going to have something else interesting soon or within a few years. Thanks for coming back on the podcast. Thanks for having me. This is a lot of fun, Michael. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter. You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. Speaking of subscribing, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere good podcasts are found. If you'd like to help us grow our podcast, like and share our episodes on social media. Look for us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Capre wrote our theme music. Emilio Brust helped with our booking. Steph Thomas is our social media manager. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening. Any workout, any mood, any time. That's what the Peloton Tread is all about. From interval runs that motivate you to go the extra mile, power walks that work up a sweat, rolling hill hikes for you to enjoy, and full body boot camps to hit your goals. Plus thousands of workouts that go beyond the tread. Strength programs, core classes, yoga, Pilates, and even boxing. Everything you need on and off the Peloton Tread. Experience it all for yourself with a 30-day home trial. Learn more at OnePeloton.com.